Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. My name is Goose, and on today's show, I had a special guest, Vanessa Newton, who is from Dashdot. She's the operations manager at Dashdot. But what we did today was we actually collected, or Vanessa did actually, connected, collected a bunch of questions that have been asked um, by friends and family members, team members, and all of that kind of stuff uh, to get them asked on the show. And this is something we are really excited about doing a little bit more so that we can get more, uh, more questions answered on this show to give more answers to you guys. So we talked about heaps of really awesome stuff. Um, we talked about, you know, why, uh, you know, interest with fixed fixed versus variable interest rates, where is that appropriate? And uh, who does that apply to? How should you think about that kind of thing? Bearing in mind, none of this is financial advice. Go speak to a professional, all that good stuff. Um, we also talked about uh, if it's ever too late to start investing in property and how to think about that. We also discussed things like, um, you know, will there be a good time to buy in Sydney? What and your, what is the impact of projects like the Batteries Creek uh, airport completion and all of that kind of stuff, uh, as well as how to think about buying an established investment property versus buying something like a new investment property. So we covered a lot of ground and I'm confident that even if you think that you are a, an experienced investor, you're going to find some really good stuff in here. So I am really excited for you to get into this and I can't wait to share it with you. So if you also want to get your questions asked and answered on this show, then send us an email to til at dashdot.com.au. Without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it and I'll see you on the inside. Hi guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is a very, very special guest, Vanessa Newton, who works at Dashdot. Vanessa, how are you? I'm really well. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you indeed. Although you might it might not be Thursday where the listener is. So whatever day it is, don't get confused, right? It is Thursday in our time, but we live in a quantum <laughs> universe. So it could be any time where you are. Who knows? Everything is and is not at the same time. Vanessa, welcome to the show. It's really nice to have you here. Most people, or actually, I would, yeah, I'd say the vast majority of people who listen to this podcast will have absolutely no idea who you are. So before no. we get into it, I want to do a whole expose on your kind of like Probably journey and stuff like that. We're going to do that later. That's not the purpose here. But just just to intro yourself, like what what do you what do you do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am the operations manager for Dashdot. So all of the magic that happens on behalf of our clients um, happens in the Dashdot team, and I'm overseeing all the awesome team leads and people that all of our clients are in contact with every day, and all the engine room that goes on behind that. Um, that's that's my privilege to be involved in every day. Yeah, and it's no mean feat. I think um, I think on the I think we're about to have a team of sixty. So you're yep. quite you're 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 steering quite a um uh, a, a moving a, quite a decent sized ship with a lot of moving parts. So it's no <laughs> it's no mean feat. Now, what are we, what are we why are we why are you on the show today, Vanessa? What are we going to be doing today? Yeah, so um, I'm obviously chatting with our team every day, of course, and they get some really cool questions coming in from clients that seems to come up quite often. Um, so, I've got some of those questions that I thought I might throw at you and, um, of course, all of our team listen to it and it can help them help their clients. And if they're questions that our team are being asked, I suspect that they're questions that a lot of people are wanting as well and, and the listeners of the show. Um, so, questions from our team, but also questions from our friends and family. Of course, when we're working in a, a property business, we get 
questions all the time. They're curious and they think that we, uh, you know, have all the answers for them. And so we have some questions from family and friends as well to throw in there. So I might grill you for a few minutes if that's all right. That sounds that sounds awesome, right? And so this kind of Q&A style of episode is something we want to do more of. And we've, I've just done a couple of them recently. Um, and just to remind people, if you have questions that you want asked on the show, um, maybe by Vanessa, maybe by somebody else, who knows? But if you want to get them asked on the show, just send an email to TIL, that's that's TIL, T-I-L, which stands for the Investor Lab, T-I-L at dash dot dot com that you shoot through your questions uh and then if you are lucky then we will tackle it on the show but i'm i'm excited let's let's get stuck yeah. into it let's dig in ready to roll so first question is around interest rates um and so particularly at the moment interest rates are quite low um and so we have some clients asking us why fixed interest rates aren't better mm. it's a good question i'm going to put a huge caveat on this at the start not a mortgage broker uh, this is not financial advice. I'm not able to do that. And if you're taking financial advice from a podcast, you've probably got some bigger issues. Right? But, <laughs> um, but this is so, so. That being said, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the thesis behind this and where and why and how it might or might not, might not make sense. So I'm going to start with a story. So uh, when Gabby and I first uh, started investing, um, we you know we bought you know and it, we, we, one of the properties we bought we ended up buying. Uh, with a fixed uh, a fixed loan, so it was fixed interest. Now the interest rate was really high. It was a pretty it was a pretty shitty loan, but it it allowed us to buy the property, right? And the problem that we faced with that is that it wasn't like it was a pretty high interest rate, and it wasn't really a great loan structure. Um, but in order for us to break that loan because it was fixed, we had to pay what's called a break fee. Now that was like five thousand dollars at the time we were looking at it. At which point we were like, "What is even like?" We were trying to re- we wanted to refinance it down to a lower interest rate. But when we did the calculations on how long was left on the on the fixed period versus how much we would save um, by going to a lower rate uh, versus uh, then and then overlaid the the break fee, we found it, it didn't actually make sense. So it was really it sucked because we had to pay a high interest rate. And it was like really inefficient, and we really didn't like it. But the benefit of like or the cost of breaking the 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 loan term didn't make sense just to get it back down to a, a lower rate. So we just had to basically suck it up, which was kind of shit. Now, uh, fixed and variable rates uh, matter to different people for different reasons. Okay, so I would I would suggest that if you are a homeowner and uh, and you have non income producing debt and you are thinking about wanting to lock in a lower rate on your home loan uh, for, a longer, for, a, for a period of time, and also if you have no plans to use the equity of, out of your property in order to fund your property portfolio, so you're not looking to do any refinancing, then that could make sense. That could make, that can make sense. Right? But for an, for an active investor, for someone who actively wants to um, try and you know, do things like refinancing or growing their portfolio and doing all this other kind of stuff, firstly, interest rates don't really matter to property investors as much. right? So it really matters to homeowners because as interest rates go up, affordability goes down and they can really find themselves in a really tricky situation because it's literally you know, coming out of their pocket. But rents go up in uh, investment properties. Um, faster than wages do, generally speaking. Um, and the the investment dynamic changes as interest rates go up as well. So what you'll find is it'll sort of find a bit of an equilibrium as we go. So it's less less impactful for property investors and really impactful for, for homeowners. So, um, so for investors, it probably doesn't make as much sense because your returns are going to be variable and be impacted in the market by interest rates as well. In generally in a in a in a in a not in a negative way, despite what the media says. 
And also, you want that ability to be able to continue to refinance property. Now, what you've got to look at is you've got to look at what is the hurdle rate of return. And so, for a lot of investments, so well, certainly, if you let's think about this from an ROI perspective. So, I know that I'm rambling a little bit, so feel free to like jump in here, Vanessa. <laughs> but like, if we think about it from a if we think about it from a return on investment perspective, uh, you know, the property, the average return on investment that our clients get is around about seventy percent in the first 12 months, right? And so when you're talking about a cost of debt of say 3% uh, versus 4% or whatever versus the access to capital to be able to make those kind of gains happen, access to capital becomes the the far greater priority than things like interest rates. So being able to maintain the uh, agility in your portfolio to be able to refinance, get cash or you know get capital, get debt, all of that kind of stuff is the critical factor in building a prolific and profitable property portfolio and taking a more short-sighted view of like, well, I'm scared that interest rates are going to go up. Therefore, I'm going to lock up my portfolio for the next whatever, two, three, five years. That can actually put a real, real big break on your ability to achieve your financial goals in the time you want to do it. Does that kind of, was it, how would you rate my response? All right. Does that kind of uh, answer the question? Did that answer yeah, the question for it does. you? Yeah, it does. And and I um it makes me think about um say say mortgage brokers. Um mm. so as you're saying, you know, that's that's where they come into their own and really deep diving into each individual person's circumstances and, and making recommendations on where they think that they should be doing it. Have you seen um the differences in some mortgage brokers, ones that um, have the capability and the interest to look at their clients' portfolios in the way that you're um, talking about, um, or ones that are a little bit more risk adverse and um, sort of might not recommend going down that path, even though the client is wanting to uh, invest in properties. Yeah, so I so there's a broader there's a broader issue there there, and it's more about actual understanding, right? So they're mm-hmm. just in the same way that in the property space there are. 99% of uh, property professionals in the property space really don't understand what the hell they're talking about. They have no actual idea how property actually works or how to actually build a, a property portfolio that's going to achieve the goals, right? So they don't understand how to avoid, how, how, to, how, how to help people avoid getting stuck and things like that. Same thing mm-hmm. goes with mortgage brokers, right? Anyone can write a loan. And if you're, if your belief system is like, well, the lowest interest rate is the best outcome for whoever, then that is going to put you down a path where you're going to make suboptimal choices when actually the goal for most property investors is to achieve financial freedom, whatever that means to them. It could be whatever that goal looks like, but it generally is a is a target and something they're aspiring to achieve and a place they're trying to get to, which requires momentum and liquidity and movement and, and all of this kind of stuff. And so when you have um, when you have brokers or professionals or anyone who doesn't take that into consideration, that's where people get stuck, right? So you got to remember the the largest sample set of property investors are, are at zero properties. They haven't they're still struggling to work out how to get started. Analysis mm. paralysis, all that stuff. Second largest get get seventy percent of them who actually get started get stuck at one property, and uh, another nineteen percent get stuck at two, which means that ninety percent of property investors never get past two properties. The reason for that is because of a misguided view on things like interest rates. Oh, I'm worried I'm going to pay more. You got to remember, like, like we're at the lowest rate time in history. Even, even if rates start, even sorry, let's say when rates start going up, right? We're still going to be ridiculously low interest rates. If you go back to the 80s, it was like 18%. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I've talked about this a lot on the show before. There is no direct correlation. There is no causation or cor- or even a direct correlation between. Uh, 
interest rates and property prices, right? And so even in even in the eighties, when you know interest rates went up, property prices also went up, right? So thinking about this in context, you've actually got to think about what is the broader objective of of anyone involved. And so yeah, in my experience. Um, most people get stuck because they don't know what they're doing, but then they go and try and find uh, professionals to assist them. But then they, those professionals also have no idea what they're doing. Mm. And then the net result is client gets stuck and they wait 30 years crossing their fingers, hoping for the best, only to find out that the only way they can unlock the capital they've created is by selling their portfolio. They never achieve the, the financial, their cash flow goals that they're after. And then they end up just like piling it all into super and hoping for the best. And it's not really the outcome mm. they wanted. Mm. Right? So there is a better way of doing it, but you do need to get people who can think about it in a more uh, agile way. Yeah, and that's um, certainly where my my mind goes. In um, if if I was about to buy my first investment property, is going okay. I know that I need these expert people around me. How do you actually know where they sit in that expert level? And if we just pull it down into the mortgage broker space, you know, they might have twenty years experience, and you ask them the question. Do you help build property portfolios? Yeah, I've built heaps in my time, but that doesn't actually answer the question of where their headspace is and what their understanding of the market is and are they actually going to be the right person to help you along that journey. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on what people could be talking to their broker about to understand? That is such a great question, right? And I am the very first person to say that egometrics don't matter, right? So I don't think it is I don't think it is an, a good question to say, or how many properties have you got, mate? And you know, have have you I don't think that's the right question. I, I think that that can actually be um, counter to to you know when we started, you know, that there's people out there that have got 20, 30 property portfolio property portfolios. We don't have that. When we started, we had like two. Like, you know, and but that doesn't mean that we haven't been able to help hundreds of people to it's like it doesn't matter right but a better question to ask would be how they think about it so for example if they do have a whole bunch of experience and a whole bunch of clients and all of that kind of stuff you could say hey just so just so i understand like what portion of your clients are property investors right okay um what portion of your clients have bought more than five properties be a really good question because they would have to have gone through that process to understand how to get them there and then you could ask a question like what is the most important thing that I need to pay attention to in order to be able to get to, let's just say, 10 properties? And then you need to judge the answer, right? Mm. Then you need to be able to use, use those kinds of questions to assess like how do they think about it? You know, because, because someone who knows what they're doing will, will tell you that you know, liquidity in the portfolio is, is paramount. Growth, growth and cash flow are the only two things that you need. And if they start talking about interest rates and all of this other kind of stuff, then you're probably on the, you're probably on the wrong track. Mm. Access to capital is way more important than interest rates. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. Thanks. No worries. Awesome. Cool. Next one. Next one off the block. Um, so a lot of our um, the family and friends of our, our team members um, are getting towards the end of their working life um, mm. and they're starting to feel like it's it's sort of too late for them to start investing in property. Um, you know, is, is it even worth it now? Should I just not worry about property investing because they think that it's a long-term game and uh, they may as well just focus on, on something like superannuation, for example, to um, to take them into their retirement. Uh, what would you say to people that, that are in that headspace at the moment? Is there a time when it is probably too late to start investing in property? Yeah. So the angle of that, because... I knew you were going to ask me a question about is it is it ever too late to start investing? And I wasn't quite sure if it was the age angle or if it was like the mm. market angle, right? So that's interesting. And we can kind of talk about the market angle because that's also interesting. But um, from the age perspective, it's, it is quite fascinating, right? Because uh, everyone needs to live in reality, right? Uh, and just be, if someone's 65 and has got $50,000 of savings, 
and they say that I want to achieve a passive income of $100,000 before I retire in five, five years' time, it's important that we actually root our thinking in, in reality. That may not be achievable, right? Full stop. Mm. Now, there are some limitations when you do get a little bit older in that banks, some, a lot of banks have like kind of age brackets that assess risk and stuff and your ability to repay the loan and do all this kind of stuff. And so your access to credit, which I touched on in the, in the last kind of question there, access to capital is the most important defining factor in building a prolific profitable property portfolio, not actually the cost of debt. Right? And just to, just to touch on that point again, if, if, if your return on invested capital is like 90% and your cost of debt is even like 10 or 20%, it still doesn't matter because you jump in the hurdle rate. So it's pretty, pretty simple mass. Um, so cost of debt doesn't really matter. Access to capital does. But if you can't get the access to capital because of your age, maybe because you have retired, if you have retired, it's, oh my God, it's, I, I don't, I, I'm not a mortgage broker, right? So I don't know how that works, but I know that it, it is, let's just, it's either not possible or it's challenging or it's somewhere in that end of the vector, right? It's not, it's not a great place to be if you want to start building a property portfolio. Mm. But if you are getting to the later stages of your career and you are starting to think, oh, actually, I haven't done anything. We have loads of people who we have helped in that kind of situation where, you know, they, they brought up a family, they've done the thing, maybe they've, they've had a career and whatever, and now they're, you know, let's say in their 50s and they're going, hang on a second, I've done all this cool stuff, we've lived a great life, we've holidayed with the kids, now the kids are growing up and it's just, it's just me and my partner and we're now thinking about, well, okay, now it's em- we're empty nest. And now we've got our whole life again together, which they probably never had because the majority of their life is actually been with their kids. So it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? And they're thinking, what, what, what's next? Now, if you're, say, 50 years old, and let's say you're going to live to your 80, you've still got 30 years. So if you go 50 and you go back 30 years, you're at 20, right? So it's like, holy smoke. So it's kind of like, it's, it's a very interesting perspective to have because if you're 20 and so what do you want your life to be like over the next 30 years, by the time you're 50, think about all the things you can do. Think about all the things you did in the last five years, right? So it's a big, it's a big, you know, spectrum to be looking at to go, wow, I'm 50. Now 50 is not that old, right? And the reason why I chose 50, right? Because if you're in your 60s and 65 or, or whatever, you're going to have some structural limitations in terms of borrowing. 50 is a different kettle of fish. You're probably still working. You're probably doing all that kind of stuff. And you've still got 30 years of your life ahead of you. Um, so there's, But you've also then still got to be realistic about what you're trying to achieve and where you're trying to get to, right? So uh, understanding the goals and the timeline and the, and the structural constraints, access to capital, total available capital, debt, all that kind of stuff is really going to make a big difference. Now, um, if you're in your, if you're 50 and you're thinking about building a property portfolio for the first time, uh, and and you're wondering can you achieve your goals, then uh, then the answer would, and let's just arbitrarily say the goal was something like whatever, a hundred thousand dollars cash. Well, the answer is yes, right? You've just got to do it intelligently, and you need to make really strong, decisive, assertive decisions over the next say five years to seven years to be able to set yourself up for that goal, and you'll be you'll be on the money, all good, right? If you are 65 and you are planning on retiring in the next six months and, or in the next, I don't, know, let's say, I don't know about 65, but let's say you're in that later end of the spectrum and you're thinking about retiring soon and you're going, I haven't done anything and oh my God, super's not gonna, my super isn't going to cut it and the pension is not going to cut it and help, what do I do? Now, is it realistic that you're going to achieve the same goal as someone who started investing when they were 20 or 30 or 40 or even 50? Well, no, it's not, but could it be a significant improvement? And we've had loads of clients like that as well, where we may not be able to help you achieve $100,000 of cash flow, but could we provide a much greater return on your capital than, uh, than you otherwise would get anywhere else? And would that then 
contribute to improving the standard of living. Now, in that scenario, it might be a case of going, well, okay, let's make as many moves as we can until bank says no or whatever the case may be, and then we'll stop. And then you can let the portfolio grow a little bit. And then in that scenario, it might actually be the case that paying that selling down the properties to access the capital, which is not the ideal outcome if you plan if you start early enough. But in that scenario, selling down, selling down the assets to access the capital or potentially doing a reverse mortgage, but they're less common and and not that great and stuff. There's other ways you can access the capital later. So is it still going to be a good idea? Yes, because the standard of living you have will improve. Your wealth will improve. Your like like your everything will be better in your life, but you just need to be realistic around what those goals specifically are. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I think it um might help some people move through some mental barriers. At least just asking the question. You might go to your expert mortgage broker and they say, you know what? It's not going to happen, but at least to ask the question or just assume that it is too late and actually engage and, and think about it um, in detail, I think is really empowering. So, yeah, hundred percent. And and mm. and you know, and there's also self-managed super funds and all of these other kind of things that you can think about as well. So there are mm. ways that you can make it work, but yeah, it really comes down to asking the question. Don't assume it's too late, right? Never assume that it's too late. It all depends on your situation. It all depends. Do you even need debt? Maybe you've got plenty of all this different stuff. And take the time to try because what is at stake is the rest of your life. Like, and I don't want that to sound too fatalistic, but that is true. Like, what is at stake is a, is the rest of your life. And if you go twenty years down the line and you haven't taken any action purely out of apathy and fear, and you live a life uh, that is below the 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 fulfillment or everything, all that, that kind of stuff that you really wanted in your life, then you'll regret it. So, so take the time, mm. push the button now, push it, push it, push it. See if you can do something. Something is always better than nothing, and try and make some moves now, even if it even if it isn't going to help you to, you know, buy some private jet or whatever or anything like that. But maybe it can still help you to get to what you where you want to take more mm. around around the world holidays or whatever. So definitely worth pushing mm. the button. Yeah. Beautiful. So I'm going to bring the the focus into um, some capital city investing at the moment. So we're in Sydney at the moment um, and you've got other capital cities around Australia. So Melbourne, Brisbane, those places. And so there are some property investors that like to buy in the capital cities. Um, and I'll use Sydney as an example at the moment because yep. we're, we're there right now. Do you think that there will be a good time to buy an investment property in Sydney? Yes. So I'll qualify that for a little bit, right? So there's no such thing as bad assets, only bad asset selection, right? Mm. So um, are there great properties to buy in Sydney? Of course there are, you know. Um, but does that mean that necessarily buying one is the right thing for your portfolio? No, it doesn't, right? Just because it's good doesn't mean it's good for you. And so understanding that first and foremost is, is critical, right? Um, so... Typically, particularly if you're going to use debt, typically properties in Sydney are going to be negatively geared. Now, generally speaking, we talk about positive cash flow properties and all of that kind of stuff, and and so this might seem like heresy, but actually, there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with having a negative cash flow asset as long as you understand where it fits in the rest of your portfolio. So, if you've already built a property portfolio and you're achieving all your cash flow goals and what you know, maybe you got temporary and you want to do something like that, then then maybe it can work, right? 
However, certainly probably not the place you should start. And you should only do that within the context of actually understanding what is your portfolio mix, uh, what is your, you know, what is your efficient frontier and all of these kind of things, which we've talked about on previous podcasts as well. So there's another part to the question, right? Um, so there's kind of two parts to this. Like, is there a good time to buy a property in Sydney? Right? It's kind of like the, 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 the broader kind of thing. Now, number one, there's like the market aspect of it. As we record this, you know, Sydney's just had its biggest boom in ages and all that kind of stuff and blah, 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 right? So is that even a good time to invest? Well, interestingly, I, I would say no. And if you go back to the listen to the podcast, I've been saying since the start of the freaking pandemic that it's not going to be sustainable because there's a lot of uh, underlying structural uh, inefficacies in that. And it's gone it's past the stage of irrational exuberance and it is probably going to pull back. So what does that mean for an astute investor? Yeah. If you time it right, if you wait a little while, it's probably going to be a great time to buy in Sydney as long as it fits within the context of your portfolio, right? Because you can get great returns in loads of places. Um, if I was a homeowner right now, if I was wanting to buy a home right now, uh, I would wait probably another 12 months or so um, and look to buy at a lower price because I believe that's what's going to happen in Sydney. I don't think that's going to happen everywhere. And you've got a lot of, uh, in the media at the moment, there's lots of people saying, oh, property price is going to drop by 10 or 25% or whatever the case may be. No, like that's not true. Maybe some places, right? But there are 15,264 suburbs in, in, in the country, right? So some places are going to go up, some places are going to go down. That's the same. It always happens. Nothing's changed, right? So, but I don't think the housing market is going to crash. I think places like Sydney, um, where uh, it reached a point of irrational exuberance in the market, I think that, Sydney is going to be more susceptible to a price pullback or a correction because I think it became overstimulated. Um, so I think that there could be a really good time to, to get some great priced assets or at least fairly priced assets. Or what you'll probably find is that the like in trying to find its equilibrium, it's gone, it's gone above where it should do and then it'll probably go a little bit below where it should be and then it'll find equilibrium. It's kind of going to bounce a little bit. Um, and so if you can kind of get that right, then there's some great opportunities to buy some great assets in, in a place like Sydney. But again... You've got to think about that kind of like portfolio mix piece because if you buy an asset, um, it might be a great asset to buy in Sydney, but if, if in doing so you get yourself stuck and you can't continue to move forward, you can't continue to buy more properties, if you can't continue to move towards your goal, then that might end up being the worst possible decision for your portfolio regardless of the returns you get on that asset. Mm. Do you find that major infrastructure projects um, make a meaningful difference to whether it's a, a good investment for your portfolio or not? So at the moment, um, the Badgery Creek Airport's being built in um, southwestern Sydney. So would you think that something that major would have a useful effect on making it a better investment? Not in the way, yes, but not in the way that you would think, right? So mm. psychographics matter much more to property markets than any of the other stuff do, Right. So, for example, let's take let's take um, Bondi, Vaucluse, eastern suburbs kind of area of Sydney. Property prices grow pretty well there, right? Mm. Yep. Yes. So <laughs> there are no infrastructure. There are no new infrastructure projects happening there. No. None. No, None. not unless you're going to build down, uh, knock down some houses. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but there's no, there's no new jobs. There's no, no. new. There's no nothing. There's no mm. that, nothing has changed. Right, nothing has changed. The only thing that drives those prices is psychographics, desirability, um, the, the the sense of status, the feeling you want to move up in the world, lifestyle, all of these other kind of things, all these softer things that are way harder to measure. Now, interestingly, we've actually been doing a lot of um, scientific analysis on uh, the impact of projects in areas, and it is so 
we totally expected to to find that it was like some kind of like really direct correlation. Like, I don't know, if you had um, a billion dollars worth of investment in an area, then an area would go up by X percent. We expected to find something like that. Or if or if a hospital went into an area, then you would get 10% growth. And if a road went into an area, you'd get 5% growth. Something like that. We expected to find some direct correlation between those kind of things. And what we found was that there is no direct correlation, right? So mm. it's it's really, really, really complex and we're still trying to uh, decode that specific part of it. Broadly speaking, when you have capital that flows into an area and there is surplus capital floating around in that market, that drives prosperity, right? So um, if we take a different example, if we go like take like a regional center, let's just say $100 million of fresh capital pumps into that area. Could be people who have moved to the area, they're getting higher wages and there's new money that's coming into the area. People are going to spend that money locally. They're going to spend it in the shops. The shop owners are going to make more money. They're going to want to buy a new car from the local car dealer, blah, 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 blah. And it becomes circular. Those economies get stimulated. There's all that kind of stuff that goes on. So all of that is broadly speaking true, right? But uh, different. It, it's very hard. To, you can't specifically say, oh, because a certain piece of infrastructure is going into an area that is going to mean a certain thing really depends on the psychographics because in an area um, where you know there could be a, a bigger psychographic impact of putting in a hospital than in one area than in another um, and so you can find examples where hospitals for example have created loads of growth you can find other areas where a new hospital has grown, gone in and prices have actually gone down and probably it's not because of the hospital it's probably just because the hospital didn't really matter in the psychographic mm. profile of the people that are there so in the context of the Badgeries Creek um, kind of scenario, um, well, actually, there's there's three. Anytime there's like a major project like that, there are three uh, optimal phases to buy to capitalize on that. So one is um, before the project is finalized. So when it's like when they're talking about it, but it kind of hasn't happened or nothing's been finalized. Bit speculative, right? Yeah. But that's kind of where you get the biggest gains. But it's speculative, you could get it wrong because like a lot of projects don't get don't move ahead. So that's kind of like the first stage. Um, the second is when actually the construction starts because there's a hive of activity and and all that kind of stuff. That's where the next big boost happens in 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 the in the chain. Uh, and then the third is when it's completed, right? So they're the kind of phases. It's like before, during, and after. And then there's kind of arbitration of of different stages in between. Mm. Now. A big thing about the Badgeries Creek thing is the psychographic. It's the sense of, it's the sense of um, progress. You know, they call it Aerotropolis and stuff. That sounds so <laughs> futuristic, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, we're going to have Aerotropolis! It's going to be like the Jetsons and like." The, I was like, thinking the Jetsons, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, totally right, totally. And everyone's like, "Oh my god, this." There's going to be all of this stuff happening and all of these jobs getting created and all of that. Every one of those thoughts may have an element of truth, but is driven by emotion. It's like, oh, my God, mm. do you know there's going to be heaps of jobs? Well, uh, uh, there could be heaps of – there could be the same amount of jobs being created somewhere else, but if you feel like that is the opportunity, then you are going to feel strongly about that being the opportunity, and then you create this kind of cycle of like um, like a self-reinforcing cycle to a certain degree. Mm. So um, the Badgeries Creek project already has had a huge impact on property prices out there, and um, when all of that stuff is completed, yeah, it's going to have more of an impact. That doesn't, again, doesn't necessarily mean let's all go buy around Badgeries Creek, right? Because you still have to look at things like uh, efficient capital distribution. Like how much is a property going to cost? Is that the best place for me to put my cash based on the price, based on what I've got, all of that kind of stuff? Um, 
what, where does it fit in my portfolio? Like, what are the yields going to be? Am I still going to maintain the liquidity I need to be able to, you know, buy more properties and do all that? Kind of, like, there's all of these other kind of considerations because there are loads of places um, where you're going to get plenty of growth, but could actually be the wrong move for your portfolio. So, really understanding that. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question. I've certainly waffled a bit. Did I kind of get there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's just the, the headspace. And I think I'm um, just really clearly defining that there's not a direct cause and effect. So just because there's a new airport or road going in doesn't mean that it's a guaranteed, uh, yep, house prices are going to be going up a quit, um, but it's not the only factor that goes into into that driver. Yeah. What's actually mm. really interesting and kind of where we're at with the study is we've broken down the country into clusters based on uh, industries of employment. So rather than geographical or political boundaries, mm. we've clustered them based on um, uh, weighting of industries of employment. So if a town has a higher percentage of, I don't know, administrative um, kind of uh, workers, or if a town has a higher percentage of tradies, or if a town has a higher percentage of mining workers, or if these kind of like broadly speaking, these different clusters, because they imply a psychographic and demographic grouping. Mm. And then what we are doing is we are then analysing what are the impacts of different projects on those kinds of groupings. Because, uh, for example, in an area that has more, um, let's say, financial services or let's say, pro- let's say professional services and stuff like that or, or more, more, more professionals, which is like group mm, it. That, a bit more like white that. collar. Mm. Yeah, a bit more white collar. You might find that entertainment um, projects hmm. act- and entertainment, broadly speaking, could be anything from a new cinema complex to a new sports stadium to a new park or public facility that people can use for recreation. So we call it, call it like entertainment and recreation is probably the better way to think about it. Um, those kind of projects tend to work better for those kinds of people, generally speaking. Um, you know, vice versa, if and I don't have the data in front of me specifically, but like if you're in an area that was more agricultural and trade, for example, you might find things like education and healthcare might have a ha, ha, projects might have a bigger impact as well. So it's a yeah, it's pretty deep, and it's like it really it really goes down to like what is the project, where is it, and what is the impact going to be. Mm. Yeah, nice, nice, fascinating. I want to go out to Badger Creek now. I want to see what's going on out there. I'm, I'm <laughs> waiting for the Aerotropolis until there's flying until there's flying cars. I'm not interested. Not real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Photos exactly. or it didn't happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I'm mindful of time, Vanessa. I think this has been really yeah. good. Did you want to? We've got more questions, but do you want to maybe like? Do we want to dig in a little bit further? Oh, I think the last question is a really good one. Maybe okay. we'll, we'll jump to that one um, because it's something that, that I've come across um, in, in my travels as well. And it's around the headspace when you're selecting a property or, or making a decision on whether to make a, an offer on a property. And so um, our clients and, and people that I know, family and friends, when they're looking at buying an investment property, if you're looking at uh, buying an established property, mm. chances are it's a little bit outdated, it might need a little bit of a renovation, a light renovation. Something's not quite right with the property uh, from there. It's an, it's an expectation that's probably the case. What can sometimes happen is a client might look at that property and go, I wouldn't want to live there. Therefore, I don't think anyone else would want to live there. And there seems to be that that mental connection and blockage for some some clients and family and friends um, 
that stop them from maybe making a really good investment decision and putting an offer in on this property because they're thinking that they wouldn't want to live there and therefore nobody else would want to live there. Do you have any thoughts on how you mentally approach that that roadblock in your mind? Totally. So the first thing for people to remember is the key thing is that they don't they already don't live there, right? <laughs> and so by nature that means that they they've chosen like that that is not their place of choice to live, right? That suburb, that area, that type of property or whatever. So understanding that like you naturally you're a different type of person. That's like you know, like I am, I am not German, right? So people in German are different to me and they, you know, they eat different foods to what I would eat, but that doesn't mean they're eating the wrong foods, right? So for just for example, so understanding that different people are different in different places and we kind of move to the places that we want to be and all of that kind of stuff is a really big thing. Um, moving to the kind of like, you know, uh, how do I bridge that kind of emotional kind of, kind of perspective? The problem that most property investors face is they don't, they, people people don't make logical decisions. They make emotional decisions and then try and support them by logic. And that is fundamentally one of the big parts of the problem that we're trying to solve, right? That's why most property investors don't achieve their goals, right? And I'd say that plainly. Most property investors get it wrong and do not achieve their goals. That is a fact, statistical fact. So, if you want to be one of the few who actually does achieve their goals, you need to approach it differently. You need to approach it, approach it with logic. You need to approach it by understanding what is the demographic and psychographic profile of the area, what is appropriate, what is in demand, all of that kind of stuff. And just because you wouldn't live there doesn't mean that somebody else wouldn't live there. I mean, Vanessa, I, don't, I haven't been to your house. I don't know how you live, but you probably wouldn't want to live in the apartment that I live in because it's probably okay for me, but it's probably not okay for you or vice versa, right? That doesn't mean that you're in a bad place or I'm in a bad place. It just means that we're different people with different viewpoints. And that's a really important thing to understand, right? Now, um, moving moving past that, you've also got um, the priced in value. So when you're looking at things like um, established properties in established neighborhoods versus new builds, for example, because new builds are shinier. They look nice. They look good. Right? Yeah, they're but, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> But the pro- there's a couple of inherent problems there, right? And there's loads of them, but I'm not going to go too deep into it. But one of the things you're paying for is you're actually all of the um, all of the values priced in, right? And also, uh, they're not in the most efficient, um, or sorry, they're not in the most. Um, how do I put this? The market hasn't found its equilibrium, right? So all areas were new once, right? <laughs> so you can't like properties never existed forever. So all areas were once new. But what tends to happen over time is areas, communities will build in those locations and all of this kind of stuff, and it'll become an established part of the locality. And then everything finds its equilibrium. Values find their equilibrium. There's constrained supply. There's certain types of people living there. And so that creates a more known quantum, right? Because there is an established equilibrium of what the what the environment is. Um, you don't get that typically if you're, let's say, you're buying in a new estate. That that doesn't exist, and so instantaneously you're operating in a more dynamic and highly variable environment with less known considerations and typically much higher supply risk. Right. So inherently, there's some there's some problems there. Um, but one of the considerations uh, aside from that, just purely on the like quality of the property, new, brand new, nice and shiny versus an established property where, you know, maybe there's a couple of dings and dints on it. And, you know, it's not talking to buy about buying dumps and, you know, complete fixer-uppers or whatever, but stuff that might need a little bit of maintenance. If you think about this from a business perspective, 
Um, if you were to try and buy a business which was at its peak, it was like it was roaring, it was like it's growing and it's super profitable and it's like at its peak, right? You're going to pay a premium for that property, right? If you were to buy a that business, if you were to buy a business which once was at that peak, premium, looked beautiful and everything like that, but you know it's had a little bit of degradation over time and it got some you know legacy issues and uh, it's not you know it's not looking as shiny as it once was. It's maybe not you know all that kind of stuff. You're about to buy that property at a discount, right? Basically, I don't know. I'm not suggesting that you go and buy. We're buying all of our properties at discounts and they're under market value and all that kind of stuff. It happens, but that's not the thesis of what I'm trying to say. The point is that you can buy something because you can unlock the hidden value that maybe somebody else can't see or maybe the owners have kind of given up on or any of that kind of stuff. And so there's a better value proposition because you won't be paying you won't be paying a premium for the property. You'll in fact be paying a more true value uh, than otherwise, which is also one of the reasons that we like to like to focus on established properties. So yeah, I think I think there's I think it's an emotional piece to to for people to move mm-hmm. past and to really think about, you know, like Thinking about it purely as an investment rather than a home, I think is one of the one of the one of the problems people face as well because they think, oh, I'm buying homes. I'm going to go buy a home. I'm going to buy a home. I'm going to buy a bunch of homes. Well, not not really. A home is yeah. an emotional thing for somebody else. What you're buying specifically is a securitized asset, right? And that could be a it could be the same as a share, a bond, a commodity, or whatever. It just turns out that it is a property. Um, and anyone who owns shares, I always ask them, like, when was the last time you went and visited your shares? If you own shares in BHP, did you go to the head office and suss them out and eyeball the management team? No, probably not. You just bought some shares and move on. So it's trying to like distill that down to what it what it is, which is a in this for, for investors, it's a financial instrument. Uh, helps that too. Mm. Yeah, really, yeah, really helpful. I think it's um, you know, purchasing an investment property, um, can be a really challenging thing and it challenges your your headspace and any preconceived ideas you have. You might not have even realized you had those ideas until you're confronted with with something. And um, so now it's it's helpful just to start to really dig into those and, and challenge your own headset um, when you're looking at the investment. So that's helpful. Thank you. 100%. Well, I've enjoyed this, Vanessa. So thanks so much. Likewise. Um, and remember, guys, if you want to get your questions asked on the show and you want me to ramble on about some you know, theoretical response to your quite probably pragmatic question, then this is your opportunity. Uh, just send an email to til at dashdot.com.au. Shoot through an email. Let us know what your questions are. We'll get them asked on the show. Vanessa, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It's been nice to have you on the show and it's been some great questions that we've been able to dig, dig into. So thanks so much. We'll yeah, see you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Goose. See you.